We are really at a crossroads in our profession. We really have to consider how we are going to do more and do better to serve more people and make sure more people are getting access to legal help and information. Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice. This is Kat Moon, your host for this episode. I'm a lawyer and legal educator, and it's part of my mission as a co-host of this podcast to engage in conversations with people who are thinking in new and different ways about how we can close the enormous civil justice gap we currently face in the U.S. In this conversation, I'm joined by Stacy Jane and Lucian Para. Stacy is the director of the Innovation for Justice, or I4J, program at the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law. And through this program, she's actively involved in exploring and experimenting with alternative ways to meet people's civil legal needs. Stacy is truly a trailblazer in this space. And we are joined by another trailblazer, Lucian Para, who is an ethics lawyer representing individuals and organizations in matters relating to the unauthorized practice of law or UPL, as well as other ethics matters. And in addition to his work as a practicing lawyer, Lucian has been a leader at the highest levels of the ABA on revisions to the model rules of professional conduct and other important lawyer conduct issues. Our starting point for this conversation is the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, or IELTS, latest report, Community and Cooperation, Action Steps Towards Unlocking Legal Regulation, which was published in August of this year, 2023. One big question we move on to explore in this conversation is how can we really move the needle with respect to legal regulatory reform in a way that better serves a broader swath of people who need legal help? because there are a lot of them. All right, now for our conversation. Hello, everyone. I am joined today by Lucian Para and Stacy Butler. Hello, Lucian and Stacy. Welcome to Talk Justice. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. I am thrilled that you are here to join me. I immediately thought of both of you when I came across IELTS latest report, Community and Cooperation, Action Steps Towards Unlocking Legal Regulation. And the reason I thought of the two of you is because you both occupy distinct positions on this spectrum of the legal profession. And I think you both have very compelling experience and expertise on the issues that are raised in the community and cooperation report. So I would love to dig into that a little bit, but really for the purpose of learning more about your experience and expertise in these areas, because I think we are really at a crossroads in our profession. I don't really feel like this is overstating it, and I'm actually going to understate it in comparison to Jim Sandman. But I think we're at a crossroads 
that we, we really have to consider how we are going to do more and do better to serve more people and make sure more people are getting access to legal help and information. So to quote an oft-cited statistic, um, according to LSC's latest report, 92% or so of legal problems experienced by low-income people in the United States go either without any legal help or any meaningful legal help. And I personally believe that that's simply intolerable. And that really is only measuring a certain segment of the population. So the need is actually much greater and wider, right? So the question from my perspective is, what can we do about this? What can we as legal professionals do about this? So setting kind of that context, that groundwork, I would love to first point out from the Community and Cooperation Report, and I love the name, I think it was very intentional, co-authored by Natalie Knowlton, who's been a guest on the show before. The focus really is on how can we bring folks together for meaningful conversations around these things so that we can then move from conversation to action and make a difference. And both of you have been really incredibly engaged, not only in the conversation, but also in the action. And so I would like to invite you, Stacy, to talk with us about your participation in this conversation and the action that you really have been spearheading in both Utah and Arizona through your work in Innovation for Justice. So um, I'm going to give you the stage to talk about your work a little bit and really as, as inspiration for us in terms of how we can move from conversation to action. Thanks, Kat. So Innovation for Justice, um, really since about 2018, has been one of our primary impact areas has been the service impact area of looking at if we're going to make changes to the rules about who gets to know and use the law, um, where is the opportunity there to improve access to justice, particularly for the low-income population that you're talking about at the top of the show from the LSC Justice Gap Report And we're uniquely positioned in Arizona and Utah to do that work. Those are two of the states, as I'm sure most listeners know, two of the states that have really led the way on um, rethinking unauthorized practice of law. And so our work has been trying to get to the center. We describe it as trying to get to the center of a Venn diagram. So one part of that is listening to community and particularly low-income community around what are the justice needs that they're experiencing that feel really, really important and limiting and frightening? And how do they want those needs met? Um, If we're going to start with a blank slate and reimagine justice, what is the justice that our community wants? That's one part of the diagram. And then another is, if we're going to let someone other than lawyers know and use the law, who are those people? And a lot of our work is focused on community-based organizations in that space, um, largely because those are the organizations that are right now helping the people in the justice gap um, who aren't getting help from lawyers and are interfacing with social services around all of the other issues that are occurring at the same time as that justice need, whether it's housing instability or financial insecurity or family safety challenges. There are a lot of community first responders that are in the gap right now with our low income community trying to help them problem solve without lawyers. So do they want to do more and what do they need to know um, to do more in this space of being able to help with legal problems? 
And then the third part of that Venn diagram is the decision makers, which is largely judges and lawyers, um, and to some extent, legal educators. But what are they willing to let go of in a world in which right now only lawyers can receive legal education and then provide legal services? What are the things that they would be willing to expand and build the bench around who can know and use the law? And so through that research, we're trying to get to the center of that and build those new service models um, right at the center. So that is really tremendous breadth and depth of work, Stacy. And um, there are so many points I would love to dig into. I'm going to pull back for just a second and ask you to reflect on one of the recommendations made in the latest Isles report, Community and Cooperation. And that is this conception of knowledge sharing. Like, so creating communities around those who have the knowledge, who have the expertise, who have the experience. Obviously, you and your team fall within that category and figuring out ways to expand access to the knowledge about what you are doing through these programs. And through that, perhaps educate clearly and frankly persuade right? Folks in other jurisdictions to consider taking similar steps to create these new pathways for legal services delivery. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of creating these communities and opportunities for information exchange, you know, what that looks like kind of on a national level, trying to move across in between the jurisdictional divisions. Because it's happening in a couple of places, but not very widely spread. And I think Lucian's going to talk about that in a minute. But before we move to him, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's a big challenge. We are trying to share out our work and get in front of particularly states that are considering but have not yet adopted regulatory reform, because I think there were a lot of lessons coming out of Arizona and Utah. Um, you know, credit to them for being early adopters, but that doesn't mean that it was a perfect process or that it couldn't be done better in the future by future jurisdictions. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to get in front of the states that are thinking about regulatory reform and um, share those lessons learned. I, I don't think right now the space has really one centralized hub for information sharing. I think IELTS has done a really good job with their knowledge center. The LSC conference and the ABA Equal Justice Conference have both tried to create space to give airtime to the different perspectives and the different efforts that are happening across the country. But yeah, I think it's important and I think it's something we could be doing a better job at. Well, I do think you all have done a tremendous job, Stacy, in creating a great point for information with your web presence. I just want to point that out. Thanks. So I definitely would refer folks who are interested in learning more about the work that I4J is doing uh, to visit your website because you all do uh, just a fantastic job of making that information available. So kudos to you and your team on that. I'd love to shift to Lucian and get some thoughts from him. Uh, I was struck, Lucian shared an article he recently published, and Lucian, I'm going to ask you also to tell people where they can find the published version of your article, because I think it's a tremendous resource. But I was really struck as I went from reading the Isles Community and Cooperation Report, which really is just a huge invitation for folks to engage and communicate more meaningfully about these issues so we can solve this, uh, this access to legal help problem. And Lucian's article 
essentially ends with um, a call to action about how we more deeply engage on these issues. And (laughs) so uh, I feel like, huh, there's really a message from the universe happening here. (laughs) So, which again, led me like one way we can engage is conversations through platforms like this, right? I think this is one of the reasons that talk justice exists. So, you know, Lucian, there are a whole lot of potential points at which you could jump in and contribute to the conversation, but recognizing that this is a conversation that you think deeply about and I think are doing as much as anyone can possibly do to move forward. What's at the top of your mind right now, Lucian, <laughs> with respect to this conversation? Well, I mean, I, first of all, I appreciate being asked to be with you. And Stacy, I is one of a number of people I know in this, in this community who's doing just amazing work. Yes. But let me back up for a second and make clear, um, you know, I come at this from a, a very different background, a very different perspective. I mean, without getting into what I do for a living entirely, there are two parts of what I've done in the last however many years that touch this. One is I'm an ethics lawyer. I I represent clients, uh, lawyers and law firms and clients of lawyers and law firms and non-lawyers in matters concerning ethics and professional responsibility and, you know, uh, UPL and champerty and maintenance, all kinds of fun, fun, fun stuff. The other part of my world has been uh, rule writing. I'm the guy who chaired the committee that got Tennessee to the model rules after 30 years with the code. I was on Ethics 2000 that rewrote the model rules uh, back in 2000, for all, from 97 to 2002. And I've been involved in a lot of rule writing at the ABA. So that gives me a somewhat different perspective. But by and large, apart from the rule writing, uh, my work has all been driven by money. Not money that I make, although that helps, but very few people hire me who do not have money to pay. And by and large, they don't hire me unless either they're in trouble, which is a fair bit of my practice. But more commonly, the last few years, it's people who, you know, have a business, who want to further their business, who want to make money. And that's where these two worlds, I think, intersect. I mean, the 92% figure you start with is reflective. I think the limits of LSC study are up to, is it 125% of the poverty level? Is that right? I think that's right. I think so, yeah. And there's also data from Bill Henderson in Indiana that makes it very, very clear that he divides the world, as do many of us, into legal services folks who provide legal services to business and to individuals. And people law, he calls the latter. And over a period of time, there's a very, very, very measurable withdrawal of lawyers being paid money for their services from people law. Not a shock. There are, you know, a dozen different reasons for why that's going on. But that means then that I think the gap, you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, a justice gap or whatever, unmet legal needs, there's an amount of that between 125% of the poverty level and basically rich people who don't have legal services that they need and want. You know, I always think of, you know, the plumber and the school teacher who are married and they need to get divorced. They got two kids in the house. You know, very, very, very expensive proposition. And it should not be so. And some try to do it on their own. And frankly, I represent a bunch of people who seeing those business opportunities are trying to serve those needs. And by the way, the people I represent are certainly not only lawyers, 
there are private equity folks. Uh, there are big funds out there. They see that as a business opportunity as well. I think that is a remarkably interesting development. It was not true 10 years ago. And in any event, that's all that as a background, you know, the question becomes, is there, and I think there is some overlap in the nature of what we could do in terms of regulatory reform that might push the needle in all of those areas? I don't know. I mean, we really, truly don't know at the moment. I'd be interested if Stacy sees this too, but very clear in my world that the regulations out there of legal services that are the most limiting, inhibiting roadblocks to people providing legal services in ways they haven't been provided before to people who want them, they are first, UPL, and second, probably a combination of the ban on fee sharing and the ban on non-lawyer ownership. It's very, frankly, more fee sharing than non-lawyer ownership. And one of the biggest things about both of those is the uncertainty. I have had two clients in the last month hire me, one of whom is a nonprofit that is trying to provide legal services related to services to help economically, to improve economic literacy, let's put it that way. And the other is a for-profit business. Both of them are very concerned about the law these days on UPL and the extent to which it restricts the ability to use software, whether AI-driven or not, to provide legal services. And the extent to which that can be done either without humans or with humans, and the extent to which it can be done with humans who are not lawyers. The law on that, on particularly even on the core part of that, you know, is essentially comes down to is TurboTax UPL, which clearly it is not. But nevertheless, there's lots of law out there that makes it pretty clear that using ChatGPT to draft a will for your Aunt Nellie is UPL. Hmm. Well, that's a problem. So anyway, I'll stop there. But those seem to me to be the two biggest impediments these days where regulatory reform would be really useful. So many threads. Stacey, go. (laughs) Well, I mean, to follow up on that last one, and there was a lot of threads, I think that for the communities we are working with, you know, we are not talking about a market-driven approach to new legal services. And so the barriers certainly are UPL. I mean, when we talk to community-based organizations, they say, well, whenever we encounter someone who seems like they have a legal problem, all we can do is send them to legal aid because um, we don't we don't want to be exposed to liability. We are not allowed to give legal advice. Lawyers have been telling us for decades we're not allowed to give legal advice. So, um, so that's one is is reassuring them that now under certain circumstances in Arizona and Utah they can. But I think the other is the education piece that you know you could tell me surprise tomorrow you get to be a dentist and I might be excited about that, but I wouldn't know the first thing about dentistry. I mean, we really have to rethink how we how we deliver legal education and build it to fit um, so that people in the field are given the knowledge that they need. And, you know, I think there's a lot we learn over the course of three years of law school. And, you know, I realize I am a law professor and went to law <laughs> school, but there's a lot we learn in three years that we don't use. And rethinking this idea that you need four years of college and three years of law school and a bar license to be able to know and use the law, because that structure is incredibly exclusive and excludes a lot of people in our community that are otherwise positioned to help. Exclusive and very expensive, which leads to a whole nother set of issues. And I think... Well, and it need not be. I mean, Mm -hmm. really and truly, who's going to tell me credibly that a well-trained layperson 
well-trained in the law of landlord and tenant and eviction in any given state, couldn't do a better job than 99% of the lawyers in helping somebody in court. Who, who believes that? So I might suggest <laughs> that it is one of the convenient fictions that we maintain in our profession in order to really maintain you know, the stranglehold that we have on the delivery of legal services, right? So Stacey, you referred to you know, not a market-driven approach. And you are, um, through I4J, involved in programs in Utah and Arizona that are training community-based lay people to assist people in that very instance, right? So no longer can the lawyers say you're not legally trained. You actually have programs to train people to be able to assist with very specific and limited legal needs. And I think that goes directly to Lucian's point. I'm curious, Stacey, if there are any high-level takeaways from your experience so far with that effort to train lay people who are best situated to help people in the moment with their specific legal problems. I mean, it's one of my favorite parts of the work is talking to someone who is working in community who has now been handed the tools to be able to provide legal advice, limited scope legal advice um, to people in the community experiencing things like being at risk of eviction or battling medical debt. Because time and again, first of all, a large number of them are women of color, which I think says something about our current structures and systems. But time and again, they talk about what it feels like to be able to make that difference and make that meaningful impact for that client in a way they couldn't before. And this feeling of no longer working with their hands tied behind their back. And they know so much already about how the civil legal system creates barriers for people without lawyers, that the education they get to become an advocate is really just a knowledge gap filling education. And then when they have that ability, it's amazing how much they're fighting for people in community. And they're all just fierce justice warriors in the community. And it's so amazing to watch them and have the privilege of working with them. Well, I, I do need to jump in here for a second. I, I am not, Kat, I think, knows this. I am not some fierce market, you know, economic libertarian advocate. On the other hand, I have to say, starting from the premise that most lawyers, most policymakers in this area do not understand that an unauthorized practice of law regime is not necessary to the rule of law. It is not necessary to justice. Britain, in fact, has just the reverse. Britain has a set of what they call reserved activities. Anybody can draw a will for somebody and get paid for it. It ain't illegal. you know. And interestingly, a few years back, when they went through this massive change in regulation, in the midst of all that, after they allowed non-lawyer ownership and all, the, uh, the lawyer said, oh, you know, wait just a second. You know, how's about we add wills to the reserved list? And they did a study. I know the guy that organized the study. Apparently, it was a very, very rigorous study of, you know, what harm befell British folks from having lawyers drawn by evil non-lawyers. You know, was it safe to let that continue or would it enhance safety of citizens to move it over to the reserve list and let only lawyers do it? And the answer was no, it was not a problem. And yes, we're going to continue to let non-lawyers do that. And no, it doesn't go on the reserve list. So the point being, what if, let's just do the thought experiment. What if in some state they decide, you know what, we're going to say it's not UPL anymore for anybody 
to advise a tenant on landlord and tenant issues or to appear for them in court. All right, so let's, that's the world we now live in. Those folks, the folks you were just referring to, Stacy, I bet you one or two of them might be able to make a little money doing that. I don't know what they'd charge, but it'd be less than I'd charge. I'm not suggesting the market can solve everything, but the truth is legal services in this country are generally delivered by virtue of a market. And UPL is one of the restrictions on whether anybody can, can provide those services. And I wonder whether or not, you know, you might suddenly, five years after that happened, go to the courthouse and be able to hire somebody in the hallway to handle your eviction matter for $25 or $50 or whatever. And they might make a nice little amount of money out of that. Maybe, I'm, maybe it's a crazy thought experiment. I don't know, but it's a thought. We have a situation now in our profession in the business of law, because law is a business. As Lucian notes in his recent article, it is both a profession and a business. But the bottom line is this. The reason why there are so many people or so many legal problems that go unaddressed or inadequately addressed is because lawyers have a monopoly on the delivery of legal services, and it isn't economically desirable for attorneys to do a lot of the work that right now it's not getting done. That's right. I think that's just the bottom line. No question. So opening up the market in a way that does allow other people to provide services, I think is clearly one of the opportunities we're missing out on for a whole host of reasons. And I'll also note that threads throughout both of the points that you all have been making really do point to the fact that these are systemic issues, right? Um, we have a, a system that we have all the systems that comprise, let's say that the meta system of our, we'll say our civil legal system right now, are all products of the second industrial revolution. So we're, we are working right now in systems that were created more than 100 years ago. We're now in the fourth industrial revolution, and some say moving into the fifth, thanks to generative AI. Things are, are getting really interesting on that front. But I think we're seeing the strains of a system that just simply can't meet the needs of the world in which we now live. And thus, we have the 92% of legal problems, plus all, all of the additional problems that aren't accounted for in that particular body of research. So it leads me back to, I think, the conversation that the Community and Cooperation Report is encouraging us to engage in, as well as, as Lucian, your call to action in your article. If we kind of pull back and think about what's happening in different places, Lucian, you're seeing with clients people who want to come forward and meet these needs in different ways. And Stacy, you're working with community members who want to meet these needs in different ways. I'm curious to know from your perspectives where we can go from here. And I think that making regulatory reform, so addressing UPL, um, changing, you know, the rules on who can own a law firm, you know, all those are clearly open for consideration, but we're not limited to that. So if we were going to be creative in approaching how we really can you know, blow this up to think about, and I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting blow up the system, but really blow up our way of thinking so that we can address this in some creative ways. The system we exist in right now, at the time it was created, was simply an experiment. It's just what people at the time came up with, and we've tinkered around the edges for more than 100 years. 
that is all it is. It is a series of choices we've made. And so, you know, my question is, how do you suggest we go about making different choices so that we can meaningfully address this access to legal help problem that we have? Stacey, I'd love to hear from you. Well, I think given the current structure of UPL, where regulatory reform has been successful so far has been where there has been a group of champions willing to look at making changes in Arizona and Utah. That's been court driven. Um, And I think as I, I don't see changes happening without states being willing to change or abolish their UPL restrictions, I think in making that decision, the real opportunity is who has a seat at the table. Because if we just put judges and lawyers at a table and say, how would you like to rethink the delivery of legal services in this country? And we're going to get a very justice-centric set of solutions. And so in our conversations with jurisdictions that are thinking about regulatory reform, we really hammer at who has a seat at this table? Like who else in your community is affected by the justice gap? And how do you give them a voice before you set up a new set of structures? And how do you listen to community? And I think that the the IELTS report we're talking about today does a good job of that. And in the conversations at the convening that led to that report, you know, I think you see in the report, there was a lot of conversation around like, well, how do we do that? I mean, I'm a big champion of the design hub, probably because I run one. But I do think that having jurisdictions find a, a neutral who can hold the space for a lot of different perspectives and do the work of aggregating those voices and finding the consensus and making the recommendations. It's a huge opportunity for legal education or just higher education to be the community space for this sort of reimagining. Yeah, and I would I would endorse and and support Stacy all those thoughts. I you know, I'm Kat and I work are working in a little bit of an informal group in Tennessee trying to get some traction going. And and I think that's important. I really do. I think it's uh re-regulation, regulatory reform, whatever you want to call it is important. That said, my own view is that equally important is a set of economic trends and forces that are happening no matter what any of us as lawyers, no matter what any Supreme Court of any state does. Most of us have lived through the changes in the world, the businesses of music and journalism. Uh, I represent some media outfits, and I've seen that one at close hand. And the world of media and journalism don't look remotely like they did 30 or 40 years ago, not remotely. Uh, there's been a great deal of disruption, a lot of people out of jobs, careers ended. But the truth is, in the 70s, early 80s, when Bruce Springsteen sang about 57 channels and nothing on, yeah, I mean, how about 57,000 channels? I mean, seriously. And law is going through that right now. Our turn in the barrel has barely begun. And the money that is flowing into this space including services that will be provided to people with no income or little income or middle income, is mind-boggling. And that was true. There hasn't been much measuring done since ChatGPT launched in November of last year. But just one slice of that business, what they call the legal tech sector, you're talking low single-digit billions of dollars being put in. And that's not including any of the money being put into AI, for gosh sakes. So, Those services, I mean, going back to UPL for a minute, I think the UPL problem is going to be solved. 
It may not be solved by litigation, but there are people actively talking about pursuit of litigation on constitutional and other grounds that might bust up the UPL regime. Beyond that, you know, in the late 1960s, uh, there's a fellow in Connecticut who published a book named Norman Dacey. The book was How to Avoid Probate. He was prosecuted in Connecticut and found to have been guilty of the unauthorized practice of law. He was prosecuted in New York, found to have been guilty of unauthorized practice of law for publishing a book, and he was let off the hook by the New York Court of Appeals. In 99, Quicken published Quicken Family Lawyer and was found by the courts in Texas to have engaged in UPL and only escaped by virtue of legislative action resulting from a settlement. So today, nobody is putting TurboTax in the dock, you know, for UPL. I think we've agreed on that, although finding support for that in the case law is difficult. I think there's some chance with the advent of AI and untold amounts of interest and support and money and intrigue and interest over those products. Yeah, I think you're going to see the force of the market actually bust up some of these restrictions. And I, I think, you know, my advice to some state Supreme Court judge who wanted to hold that back to stop to keep ChatGPT or some service powered by it from providing legal advice. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that. You know, pretty soon you're going to be able to get advice on your DUI for $100 from a chat GPT-driven service. Maybe a lawyer will provide it. Maybe somebody else will. Ditto with eviction and whatever else. And I think it's going to be so popular that you're not going to be able to stand in the way of that. So I am sort of a perverse optimist in the sense that I think regulations are going to be forced to accommodate what people want. And I think we're about to a place where what people want in the way of legal services might be available. We'll see. Maybe I'm just a crazy optimist. Well, Lucian, I will point out that folks are already using the available tools to help themselves, right? Folks engage in self-help constantly. And the notion that lawyers should put themselves in the position of stopping people from exercising, getting self-help, um, really, I think, is untenable. <laughs> so the question is, do we want to be proactive in helping to ensure that what gets built to enable self-help is actually as helpful as possible? I think that's where our opportunity is. I, I could not agree more, and I'm hopeful, terribly hopeful, that folks who are in the, the community Stacy is a part of are building those right now. Yes. I mean, I would hope every legal services affiliate in this country, every design hub in this country are building those kind of services. I realize many of them are afraid to death of building some, you know, eviction bot that somebody could take with them to court. I get that. But I hope some of them are doing it anyway. I, I hope some of them are rising above that fear and just plowing ahead. Yes, because I think, Stacy, to your point, engaging with people in the community who have that truly on the ground expert knowledge about the communities who these tools need to serve, that is exactly what we need to have happening. So Stacey, that might be your next project, maybe. Working with folks to build that bot? Yeah, maybe? We've had a few projects kind of in that space that we've been really fortunate to work on. The most recent is with Alaska Legal Services. They have a, a technology tool that helps streamline the process of uh, 
compiling or preparing your social security disability application. That project to me is really interesting because it's actually a tool for helpers, not for the applicant themselves. Hmm. Um, and so, interesting. Um, but that comes from taking the time to listen to the community and understand that someone who may be experiencing a disability is maybe not the right user for a technology tool that streamlines the application process and listening to community around, you know, that person has a helper and that helper needs technology help. That's an exciting tool to me. It could be used anywhere in the country. It's the same process. It's a federal process. So yes, I'm very, I'm very proud of the work that's led by Sarah Maway in our UX for Justice impact area. And it's a critical piece of our, our three-part theory of change. And that's an excellent example of why we need effective ways of sharing what people are doing and building. So exactly, Stacey, others can learn from the tool that you all have built and maybe even engage using it in, in different jurisdictions. So thank you both so much. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I hate to stop, but we are running close to our time limits. But before we go... Stacy, can you tell folks where they can learn more about the I4J work? Sure. Our website is innovationforjustice.org. It's the number four, not the word for. Up at the top right, if you click on our work, um, takes you to a page that separates our work into our three impact areas. Um, mostly today we talked about our service impact area. Um, you can also reach us at info at innovationforjustice.org. Awesome. Thank you. And Lucian. Can you tell folks where they can find your latest article that I think digs into a lot of this? You know, I'm embarrassed to say I have not checked the South Carolina Law Review website to see if they've actually posted it, but we've posted it on our firm's website, adamsandreese.com, under uh, news and knowledge. So, Or you can just drop me a note. Happy to send it. Excellent. Thank you both again so much. This conversation has been enlightening and energizing, both. And fun. And fun. Absolutely. I'm grateful to you both for coming and joining in this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you, Kat. Thank you. A couple of thoughts for us to take away from this conversation and perhaps spur continuing this conversation. One is Lucian's premise that the unauthorized practice of law regime is not even necessary to the rule of law or necessary to justice for that matter. And we can look to other jurisdictions such as the UK to learn about how rethinking UPL might actually increase access to legal help for more people. Another point to take away is Stacy's that change has happened where there has been a group of champions in states that are willing to change and abolish UPL restrictions. And her big question she leaves us with, who has a seat at this table where these changes are being made? A very important question indeed, and I hope one that will spur future conversations on this topic. A final note that Lucian's article, Ethics, Lawyering, and Regulation in a Time of Great Change, has been published, and you can find it online in Issue 4, Volume 74 of the South Carolina Law Review. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Talk Justice is brought to you by Legal Services Corporation and Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to rate and review the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.